0: It's great to be with you today. Uh, I've noticed already a handful of people wearing, uh, acknowledging what season it is, and there's a lot of uh, football uh, uh, attire that's on. I actually had um, an illustration for this, so this fits out well. Um, Football season is starting up, and. Uh, something that I enjoy about football season, specifically college football season, are the posters that, that fans will have. And, you know, it's usually a little bit of ribbing of the other team or the other school. Uh, so I had a couple that I wanted to show you uh, that, that amused me. So uh, Miami's offense runs like the Obamacare website. <laughs> not, not, not political commentary here, just clever. Just clever. Uh, next one, uh, social distancing. And that's the the college football playoff uh, trophy and uh, Georgia. Uh, Another one. (laughs) And I have one more to show you. it's always, it's always funny, you watch, you watch on TV and you see people who come up with creative things and they, they write things up there and, you know, it's playful and they make fun of the other school or something about the team. Uh, on, on a separate note, another sign that you, you often see is, is one that looks like this. Uh, and kind of whenever you're watching a game, there always seems to be someone in the end zone or somewhere that they have a John 316 uh, poster and it's, it's everywhere. Uh, and we see this not just at games, but we see this on um, bumper stickers and billboards and social media ads, and everybody's reposting this. And this is a verse that we're kind of inundated by uh, that we see so often. And often, when I see a poster like that, the question that comes to my mind is who responds to that? Like, are there people that look at that verse and then they think, oh, I'm gonna, I'm curious about what that means? Like, are there people that, that, see that and then look up the verse? Are there people that have come to faith behind that? Is it something that just we've seen so much that we don't really think about? Uh, I think about who, who is that person and what is that person like? Uh, sometimes, though, I also need to think, um, should, should I be that person? Um, is, is John 3.16 just a passage that I've heard so many times and read so many times that I just assume that I know it? I just assume that this is a verse that's for people who haven't placed their faith in Jesus. Or is this a verse that's also for me as well? Uh, is this a verse that's supposed to, to be something as a Christian that I come back to time and time again? So this is, this is a verse that as much as we've heard, uh, it's a verse that we need to come back to as Christians. And if, this is a, and if you are not a Christian, then this is a verse that probably better than any other place in Scripture defines what the gospel is about. So it's so important that as much as maybe we feel like we know this passage, we still need to come back to it and remember the truths that it teaches us. Uh, I think it's interesting that this passage comes in the context of a very devout and religious man. Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was someone who, he was a Jew who was very well versed in, in the Old Testament, he, he had heritage passed down from him to him that he knew all about the promises God had made to his ancestors. He was aware of the relationship his people had had with God. He knew about the law that God had given to Moses. And he wasn't just a Jew, he was also a Pharisee. He was a teacher. He was very well educated in what the law was about. He probably had large sections of the Old Testament memorized, and not just a Pharisee, he was also part of the, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and so he was an elite Pharisee. And so G, he talks with Jesus, and this is something that, that is alluded to, a truth that's alluded to throughout the Old Testament, and still, somehow, as much as uh, education, as much understanding as he has about the Old Testament, he still misses the point of the gospel. There's still things that he assumes that he misunderstood. And there's still a correction that Jesus has to give him and say, we need to come back and talk about what it means uh, to be a follower of Christ. Nicodemus, when he's talking to Jesus, he has a suspicion that there is something special and unique about Jesus. He's trying to understand and discern who is Jesus, what is his relationship to God, and if if it's possible that he's the Messiah, he's this promised king and deliverer that, that God has promised us, what should my response to him be? And, it's, and we see from Jesus' responses to him that Jesus is very clearly talking about eternal life. And so in light of the gospel, in light of this, what we see in this conversation, what is our response to Jesus? Jesus. What does God expect from us if we want to have eternal life? What, what do we need to give or what does God want from us? And that's something we need, to, we need to come back to and we're going to talk about today. And as Jesus talks about this with Nicodemus, the very first thing he starts to speak to is the need for the gospel. And, the very first, and when he talks about the need for the gospel, he talks about there is a need for a rebirth and a renewal for us. So we're going to turn to to John 3. Uh, I'm going to have it up here, and I'm going to use a different translation than than normal. Uh, Instead of having an NIV, which I usually have, uh, I'm going to have the New English translation. There's a couple ways that uh, the New English translation words things that I think are are a little bit clearer. Uh, So if this looks different from your Bible, that's that's what we're looking at up here. Uh, We're going to start in verse 5. Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth, Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus, Jesus says these things, and when he's talking about entering the kingdom of God, in this conversation he also says seeing the kingdom of God. What's, what's in mind here is, is eternal life, is entering into the kingdom of That the Messiah is bringing before uh, before the Jewish people and the rest of the world, he makes some kind of confusing comments here. Of to be able to enter into the kingdom of God, to be able to have eternal life, you need to be born of water and of spirit. This is this this kind of strange phrase. This is Old Testament um, references that speaking of a cleansing something where there was water that would cleanse and wash over something, and then God would respond by pouring out his spirit. So Jesus is saying here, in order for you to experience eternal life, in order for you to enter his kingdom, you need to have a cleansing, you need to have a renewal, a rebirth. And from this, he starts to have a conversation that Nicodemus gets confused by where he says you need to be born again, and Nicodemus says, how how can anyone physically be born again? What are you, what are you talking about here? And it's, Nicodemus is confused that as much as he should understand about the Old Testament, as well-versed as he should, as he should pick up on some of these references about being born of water and spirit, he misunderstands. There's some kind of barrier that he has preventing him from understanding what Jesus is talking about. And I think part of it is when you think about the Jewish mindset for for much of their history, the, the thinking was God has given us the law. He's shown us what he expects from us. And so if I obey the law, then doesn't God bless me? And if I disobey the law, then doesn't God punish me? And so from, for in this kind of mindset and this misunderstanding of what the law is supposed to be, the thinking is then, well, to be spiritual, to have some kind of redemption and reconciliation with God, it comes through my obedience. That if I just obey well enough that I messed up today, but if I make a couple corrections and change my habits tomorrow, I'll get a little bit better, and then I'll try a little bit harder the next day, and each day I'll kind of get a little bit more holy and a little bit more obedient and be able to follow the law a little bit better. And kind of at some point, I'll break through whatever that barrier is, and I'll have this, this correct spiritual relationship with God. And when when Jesus speaks to this, he says, no, you need to understand the gap, this chasm that exists between what is spiritual and what is physical. And what's needed is not just this step-by-step methodical growing and correction of habits, you know, 10 steps to a holier life or something like that. He says, this will never get you there you need to understand for the need for the gospel it's because you can never progressively grow or mature to that right standard it says instead what's needed is not is not a correction is not a redirection but it's a, a total overhaul there has to be this rebirth this renewal and it's something that we can't provide for ourselves Part of what's hard about this is this confronts us with the reality of, of who we are and the reality that we often don't like to look at who we are. We are great self-deceivers. We are great at ignoring the truths about ourselves and ignoring who we really are, and it's much easier to believe the myth that I'm not that desperate that I need an, a full overhaul and full recreation. I just need a couple more steps, and then I'll get there. This, this book um, called I Told Me So, uh, it's a, a book about self-deception and the Christian life. Uh, the author, Greg Tennisoff, uh, writes about this, this study that was taken of a million high school seniors and one of, the, one of the surveys that often comes up in, in high school and even in college, uh, it'll give you a different category and then it asks you to rate yourself compared to your peers. Like you in the top 50%, the top 25%. You guys know that, uh, know this. Um, so he, he's talking about from, a mil, from the, the scope of a million high school seniors, the results from this. One of the things said, 70% considered themselves above average in the category of leadership. The number that considered themselves below average was 2%. In terms of getting along with others, 60% said they were in the top 10% of their peers. 25% reported that they were in the top 1% of their peers. And he says this isn't something that's isolated to just the phase of life of being a high school senior. He says these uh, same results and these same trends can be found regardless of what stage of life they are, whether we're in our career. All of us think that we are at least above average. Like, I do my job at least better than the typical person, right? And this is something that is just a reflection of our our conviction and, and belief that I'm, I'm not that bad. Like, I'm, I'm okay, right? Like, I. okay, you know, I have some flaws. Maybe I'm not the top 1%. I'm not going to try to say that I'm perfect, but I'm not that bad. Like, if I can just take a couple more steps, there's a couple bad habits I know that I have. I need to try to stop doing this and this and this. But once that's out of the way, like, I'm good, Right? And there's a part of us that believes this truth that once those things that we've identified are resolved and taken care of, then we'll stand before God justified. At least we'll be okay then. Maybe not perfect, but good enough. And what's so tricky about this is then at this point, we have ultimately said, we are the ones that create the standard. And now God is subject to that standard. I've identified that once these habits are removed, I'm good enough to meet the standard, and so God will provide me what I deserve. And at that point, eternal life is attainable. I can take those proper steps. I can get there, and I'm not that desperate that I need a full rebirth. And Jesus' response to Nicodemus is, the gospel says that it's needed because a full rebirth is needed. We have to be born again. There has to, we have to be made into something new. The comfort of this is Second Corinthians 5 tells us when anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, the old is gone, and there the promise of the gospel is that when we do believe in Jesus, we are a new person. As as we continue, um, this is a process that, that Jesus makes clear we are incapable of. Uh, he also says it's it's very simple for how we move forward and move into this. He says eternal life, something that is through spiritual rebirth, happens just through faith. Let's let's continue in verse fourteen. It says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He says this, this rebirth that is so desperately needed, he says he has done everything that's needed to make it available to us. Something that, again, I think it's hard for us to really, really capture, but try to put yourselves in the shoes of, of Nicodemus, where Nicodemus has the expectation that God is going to provide some kind of deliverer, some kind of king for them. His expectation, though, is that he comes as a liberator, he comes and whoever is oppressing God's people, he is, going to, he is going to fight against them. He is going to relieve Israel of their oppressors. Uh, they're going to find freedom and they're going to enjoy the rule of this promised one. So when Nicodemus having that in mind and then he's told, he's this, this Messiah, this promised person isn't coming to, to judge, to condemn But to save, he's thinking, no, he's supposed to come and he's supposed to judge. He's supposed to judge the people that are oppressing us. He's not supposed to come to save. And this flies in the face of what what he's expecting. And Jesus is saying, no, I've come for a different purpose. And my purpose is, is, is showing the heart of God that God's heart is for the salvation of people that this reveals about the character of God and how he views his creation, that he came for the purpose to save, not for the purpose to condemn and to judge. There's two comments I want to make about the translation, and this is why I use this version um, for verse 16. Um, The first one, uh, a lot of times we hear the phrase, um, like, the only begotten uh, son of God. The, the, this word uh, for begotten is better translated. It's not supposed to be commentary on like the origin of Christ or that he was birthed or something like that. What, what this word better means is, is speaking to the singularity of Christ. That there was one son. That, so this, this translation says the one and only. It's speaking to there is just one son and no one else. There. It speaks to how much the father would value and the uniqueness of that relationship. That, that there's no one else that he sent, no one else that he trusted, no one else that was sufficient to do the work that, that Jesus did. The other thing that, that is interesting with the translation is, is how we often translate the beginning, where so often it's, um, for God so loved the world. This is, this is an example where uh, this is a biblical idea, but probably a mistranslation of, of this verse. Sometimes when we think, for God so loved the world, it, it gives us the, the idea that it's like, God, God loved the world so much, you know, big hug, I, I love you so, so much. Uh, this, is, this is better understood and, and probably a better translated uh, that this is the way that God showed his love. Uh, this first, the first part of this verse isn't necessarily saying the extent to God, how much God loved the world. It's more showing the means by which he, he showed his love. That God loved the world. This is how he viewed the world, and he demonstrated that by sending his son to die for us. And this is something that brings us a lot, that can bring us a lot of comfort, especially when we come back to those times where we think, I don't really know how, if, if God loves me that much. I go through something dark and I start questioning, does God really care for me? Why would he allow these things? And this speaks to how central the cross is to the Christian life. Then I might be struggling and I might be hurting, but I can still look to John 3.16 and it still reminds me, God demonstrated that he loves me by what he did on the cross. And that's something that's happened, and that's something that I can come back to time and time again. But what's so important about this is that we don't add anything to such a simple message. This message is believe in Jesus and believe in the eternal life that he offers. And yet, how easy is it to try to add something to that? Okay, believe in Jesus, but also make sure X, Y, and Z, and do these other things. Believe and make sure, but you still do follow these other rules as well. And it's so easy for us to try to add other things to such a simple message. A message that's been defined only by faith. Often what the reason behind uh, what what I hear why we are are tempted to add things to to this gospel message, often it comes down to... um, I am worried that people are just going to take advantage of God's grace. You know, I'm people are just, you know, they're going to show up, they're going to say they believe in Jesus, and then they're going to go and smoke pot and watch Game of Thrones and do all these other things. And, you know, we got to make sure that people get it. So don't, don't, don't get too carried away. Make sure that there's some kind of qualifier that you believe in God, but also, and there's this conviction that, as Christians, uh, we're all just kind of looking to embrace uh, easy faith and then just try to go on about our day and do whatever we want and live, live licentiously. And th- this is wrong for two reasons. One, one reason is it's always convenient that the people who say that and when we ourselves think that, we're never the ones that take advantage of God's grace. It's always somebody else who takes advantage of God's grace, right? Because I meet the right standards of what it, what it takes to not abuse God's grace. It's, it's other people, it's the, the Game of Thrones watching people. I don't watch Game of Thrones, so I'm okay. And so we have some sort of standard of what it means to not abuse God's grace, so we meet that standard, but then we see other people breaking that standard. And so it's con- very convenient that the only abusers of grace are people other than me. The other issue, and this is the bigger issue, is what we just talked about in, the, in our first section. You don't just believe in Jesus and then move about your day. He says, when you believe in Jesus, you have been reborn. You have a new nature. You haven't left that, that interaction unchanged. You, you don't have the same desires. You don't have the same nature. You have been changed and you now have the Holy Spirit in you. You're not going to go about and do the same things. And if, we can, if we're really going to trust God uh, in this promise of the gospel, let's also trust that he says he's going to do what he, what he says and give us a new nature. It's okay to keep the gospel simple. And it's necessary to do so. We don't need to add other things to it for fear of people running off the rails and, and going crazy. The gospel is meant to be simple. We don't need to attach strings to it, but instead we can say, I trust the, I trust the gift maker and I trust his gift. That he gives this freely and it's transformative. If it's this uncomplicated, why isn't it more embraced, though? Why is it so hard to accept what barrier keeps us from it? And I think that it's, it's deeply exposing. Well, let's continue in, in verse 19. Now, this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world and that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. This passage says that when we are in sin, our desire is to hide and to withdraw, that there's both an attraction to our sin but also a willingness to look away from it and to ignore it. That our sin brings us delight, that we love it. There are things that we do when we sin that we can really enjoy. There's pleasure that that can be found in sin. But there's also a part of us that we desire to stay in darkness so we don't actually have to see the carnage that sin brings. I'd rather not look at that. I want to experience the feeling and the pleasure that sin brings me, but I don't want to have to see what the fallout is and how it affects other people and even how my sin affects myself. And so I don't want the gospel. I don't want to be confronted with the truth that the gospel says that I need to be reborn, that I can't just take step one, step two, step three and get better and get over my issues. I don't want to be that kind of helpless. And so I'm attracted and I desire to stay in my self-deception to keep saying, I'm not that bad. You know, I sin some. Yeah, it it makes me happy sometimes when I do sin, but I'm not that bad. And so I'd rather just keep turning a blind eye to that and not see the reality of how desperate I am that I need to be born again. That I need someone to radically renew me and make me into something new. That I'm in that desperate need, that helpless for a Savior to step in and change me. And so it's attractive to just say, I want to remain in the darkness. I want to enjoy my sin. I want to enjoy the, the pleasure and the delight that it brings me, but not look at anything else. I don't want to know how this affects other things. And the gospel ends up showing us we are messed up, we are in need of a Savior. But it also says there is a path forward and there is a renewal that can be had. I think the question for the Christian experience is, will you let God help you? Whether or not you've placed your faith in Jesus or you already have, the question remains the same, will you let God help you? Will you let God save you? Will you let God protect you? Because the sin that that we do, whether or not we want to look at it, it both hurts other people and it hurts ourselves. And so, are we willing to take off the mask of self deception and look at it and say, God, I need you. I need you to remake me. I trust you and I trust the promise that you have. The barrier that we have to experiencing God's deliverance is our willingness to trust him. You know, this is a passage that you have heard probably many, many times and read this over and over, but it is probably the best place that we can go to for a succinct explanation of what the gospel is. And it's a simple message but it's a message that says we cannot improve ourselves to the point that we can have eternal life and enter God's kingdom. It's a message that says there is no hope in our self-deception that we can find salvation that way. But the good news is God provides that path for us. He demonstrated how he loves us by giving us his son to die for us. And God has made a promise to us that he will give us eternal life if we trust in him. So we trust that God has made this, that he's done this work. We trust that he will give us a new nature when we believe in him. And we can trust that that new nature is what now defines us for who we are. This is something we hold firm to. But again, we say, will you let God save you? And this is the question for the Christian and the non-Christian alike. Let me pray for us.